This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Hi, welcome back to Clean Tech Talk. I'm your host, Michael Barnard. Uh, Zach Shahan isn't listening in today. Um, my guest today is Bruce Hayden, architect, urbanist, author, um, designed the Ink Me Ram Earth Cultural Center, which is a gorgeous building in the Okanagan, which I've been to. And he also w- worked heavily with his uh, with dialogue on the design of Vancouver House, a stunning new building that's um, just opened up in Vancouver, about uh, half a kilometer from where I live, something I admire from every angle I see it on. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you. Um, so talk about Vancouver House a bit, because it's, it's a fascinating building. It, you know, it respects the view corridors, it, but it cantilevers out over one of the biggest, busiest thoroughfares in the city. So, you know, What's, mo- what's the most interesting thing you found about that, that project? Well, I, I, what I like to do when I talk about Vancouver House is start about what, what my personal passion to get involved in. This was a project that was uh, where the design was led by Bjarke Ingels of uh, Bjarke Ingels Group, who literally went um, in the period we were working on Vancouver House from uh, very well-known to stratospherically well-known, um, which was an interesting process to be part of. Um, I always like to tell a funny anecdote. When we did start, um, our early design meetings had an a, a, um, Italian photographer and author from one of the glossy Italian design mags following us around all the time. And so having a, a very high, a large telephoto lens in Bjarke's face for most of the meetings, we have to say, which was an extremely odd personal experience. Um, but part of the the reason that I was quite passionate about Vancouver House from the beginning was that what I saw going on in Vancouver in general was a very large number of towers built in a very short period of time with a relatively narrow range of design preoccupations. And I felt strongly that if the landscape, if the built landscape of the city was going to be better, that we needed to uh, have some people who really didn't buy into some of the conventional ways of thinking about towers. Uh, And for that, you need an exceptional client. So Ian Gillespie of West Bank was that exceptional client. And you need, I do think it's, it's very valuable for healthy architectural cultures to bring outsiders in once in a while. Some people get very kind of parochial and closed-minded about it. But, but I think that the architecture culture in Vancouver, especially on residential towers was, was, not to put too fine a point on it, a bit lazy. And, um, <laughs> let's, let's and, do a, you know, a rectangle with a podium and green glass. 
Yeah, and some some of that has to do with the way that we write our zoning bylaws in the city, and um, there, there's there's a much longer conversation about that. But the one of the my former partner at, at Dialogue, Joost Bakker, um, he used to he at one point took a group of Danish architects to Granville Island. It was looking across at the North Shore of False Creek, where all of the Concord Pacific Yale Town Towers had, were either in, in progress. This was a few years ago. And they kind of looked at him and said, do you use architects? <laughs> Which I don't think that was perhaps an entirely fair statement, but what, what everybody recognized was that there was a certain um, ordinariness. And, uh, and, and I, I hesitate to put it all on the architects. There's a many, many nuanced reasons for that. But we needed, I think, to get to the next level of, um, tower design in Vancouver. We really, I think, needed people who are willing to say, let's not take the rules of the grain for granted. And I think the combination of uh, Bjark Ingalls and Ian Gillespie were really willing to do that. So for me, it was the ability to be part of building where you could then go to the development community and say, listen, you don't have to do a building that looks exactly like all of Pacific Boulevard, um, which is one of the main streets in downtown Vancouver. Um, you can do buildings that actually look radically different well even on pacific though there is the um what is it uh, the, the, the erickson tv tower what it what the, the one that spirals upwards on its floor plan that's more interesting but you know it is yeah. interesting to me that we went through this period of relative architectural mediocrity because you know i mentioned arthur erickson and gee is, is his name all over many many fascinating buildings in the Lower Mainland, we have um, the Vancouver Law Courts. We have mm-hmm. uh, the Museum of Anthropology up at UBC. We have SFU's main campus, um, as well as the many bu- buildings he's designed, um, mm-hmm. homes he's designed. And we have concrete, brutalist apartment towers, um, you know, mixed in amongst the green glass sameness. So it, it is interesting to me that we kind of went through this period of rapid expansion with relatively limited pieces. Um, one of my obsessions, um, one of my many obsessions is the regulatory frameworks that drive that. Do you want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about the regulations that led to that similarity? So uh, I, I like to, th- to, to think of this um, yeah, from the very broadest perspective first. So the uh, regulations are fundamentally a expression of a set of societal values. So I often like to, to contrast, for example, Seattle and Vancouver. And if you look at, in, it's, it's always easy to be used, simple, simplistic glib phrases, um, uh, and I, I like to avoid those if possible, because one of the great things about this format is you can, in fact, get a little deeper into things. But in simple terms, I think of Seattle as having better buildings of worse streets. Sure. And so... So if you think about it, one of the reasons for that is that the way money is distributed in the two countries is very different. So every major city in the United States has at least a few kind of large-scale corporate head offices, um, which is quite different than Canada, where corporate head office concentration is overwhelmingly in Toronto. Now, there are a few in Vancouver, but so Seattle, you have this kind of architectural, um, and, and by the way, what, what I'm really talking about is the downtown core towers is yes. really what I'm talking about. Um, we're, not, we're not talking about suburbia or even the fringe areas. Right. This is really what, what this discussion is focused on. 
And so we have this situation where you've got like um, major, major corporations in Seattle that are really trying to, on one level, outdo each other. So you have a higher level of finishes. Uh, in general, you have a higher level of concentration of wealth in Seattle. So you get a few better buildings, but what you don't get is um, the money invested in kind of public values, you know, fewer downtown parks. Um, for a long time until recently, the downtown was really an expressway. And so I often think about that as the contrast between the, the kind of Canadian um, um, social values that um, are about let's create great streetscapes and great public areas and somewhat de-emphasize the, the, the role of the buildings themselves. Now, that unfortunately can sometimes lead to a certain degree of sameness, right? Mm -hmm. um, and one of the other challenges I think that occurs was that, that I think any city, if you look at any city which has had a major building boom that's really a long period of time, inevitably there's a sameness. I mean, there's a certain sameness in Georgian London, as beautiful as it is. There's a, there's a sameness in Houseman's Paris, mm -hmm. um, which, which of course create, create a great sense of integrity. Um, but I think that the, those periods of sameness um, are, uh, can be good or bad depending on the, the quality and character of the design ethos of the time. So in terms of downtown Vancouver, for example, uh, we would control height very tightly and the density was kind of often negotiated, but the height was clearly capped. Yeah. So one of the things that that created, for example, was a very, very strong incentive to have all the floor to floor heights as low as possible. Um, and so that means that you, and, and in fact, they developed a system uh, in very unusual that was, as far as I know, not perhaps 100% unique to Vancouver, but certainly in the most common use here of embedding all the services in a thin concrete slab that included the floor, which means these buildings are extremely inflexible, by the way. It would be impossible to turn them effectively into office buildings or even into different types of residential buildings. Yes. Um, so... So you have a kind of stack of eight foot eight inch um, pancakes, and that's and and inevitably it's cheapest to kind of express that slab, you know. So from a cost perspective, you you kind of take those slabs and you stick windows between those, and you kind of show the slab, even if you clad it. So this creates a very very consistent horizontal grain um, that you can then. You know, you can add color and things like that, but the the bones of the thing, the bones of those towers, are virtually identical. And um, and then if you look at, for example, the availability of affordable window types, um, there were, in fact, for a very long period of time, really only two manufacturers in, in that were easily available to Vancouver because we're not a manufacturing community and we're quite remote that were affordable. And they had a certain kind of window spacing you could use. Mm -hmm. So those two things together meant that your palette as an architect was actually relatively narrow. Um, uh, and we were also in a kind of um, a boom period where, to some extent, people didn't care whether it was good. Like so, so in Vancouver, value is often in, in the view. So you can higher up is more value. Yep. But better qual better quality is historically not being particularly perceived as value. It's you know we argue as architects that the developer well you can get more money if you build a better building, and sadly that's not actually often the case. Um, it's sometimes the case with the very, very, very premium buildings. But in the mid-range, you know, a buyer will look at it and go, well, this is $400 a square foot and this is $800 a square foot. You know, why would I, you know, 
why would I, why would I pay more, that much more? Um, because things like leaky condos and stuff, it always seems an abstract future, future ch- challenge. Yeah. So, so there's a series of, so there's the, the, the kind of social values and there's the, the technical um, means and methods of construction and the way that the regulatory framework um, layers. So those, those two things layer across with the fact they're all built in the same time. And I do, I, I think as designers, anybody, like it, this isn't just a design thing, we're all um, subconsciously locked in the ethos and values of our time. Um, and, and I think that it's very, very difficult to step out of that. I sometimes, when I'm working on a new building, I sometimes think of myself and go, okay, what will people in my position 30 years from now look back and say, well, that looks really stupid right? <laughs> or ugly or, um, and, and, and to me, it makes perfect sense because my brain is my, my brain is, um, uh, my brain of someone born in 1962 living in 2020. And I can't get away from that. I can be conscious of it, and and nor can you. But we're all caught in these things about our attitude. It's not just about um, design, of course, but but it is. It is so, so when you have buildings that are built in a, in a very short period of time, what happens? I think it's inevitably has a a cost. Sorry, but by that I mean a bunch of buildings built in a short period of time. It inevitably has a, a cost to the overall variety and 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 architectural dynamism of a city. Yeah, it's trivia. Um, uh, and this all sounds, you know, to a certain extent negative, but I, um, in the sense that there's an aesthetic sameness, but I, I will say the following, um, having been to all the cities and paid attention to our, I mean, uh, as I said to you in the preamble, 25 cities, 10 countries, um, multiple continents in the past decade alone. And, you know, childhood, I actually got to Paris um, as a child. You know, what, as someone who walks around cities everywhere in the world, specifically mm-hmm. who was a streetscape urbanist person who you know has read Jacobson has read Alexander and written on architecture and urbanism um, uh, my observation is that Vancouver streets work much better than the vast majority of city streets work um, and and I agree, is, I agree with that I think that's a good observation you know the the podium model uh, I in downtown Toronto where I've spent an awful lot of my time it's my second home city um, is the that permeability of the building facade doesn't exist the buildings are blank walls at the sidewalk and the venturi effect is much stronger because of the lack of the podium model that sets back after a couple of stories so you get these howling winds through the bay street corridor for example and mm-hmm. you know so the negotiation that beasley and others in the urban planning department you know all the people you've dealt with for decades now, um, had done was to create a culture where street level amenities, street level Jane Jacobs style, multiplicity of offerings in every building facade, and an insertion of cultural and social services at street level as a requirement has led to a truly tremendous, vibrant city, which is also antithetical to a bunch of the stuff that Jacobs and Alexander talked about it's outside of those their design patterns but it worked mm-hmm. really well and, and the other thing i say about vancouver just to highlight this for our listeners it's in a, probably the most gorgeous setting of any city in the world and we managed mm-hmm. not to screw that up like I, I i compare and contrast to sydney sydney's a fascinating place i spent a week there wandering around it with my wife um mm-hmm. the seawall here it's transcendental it 
barely exists as a concept in most other cities. In, in Sydney, it's mm-hmm. also a gorgeous setting, but you keep having to walk up over and then back down to the water in the various places where you can get to it. We had that, we had the view quarters, which we touched on, which enable people from all over the city who have no income or you know, aren't rich people to stand and see gorgeousness because we've preserved those views. We've preserved public amenities, but there was a downside to that. I, th- yeah, I think the way you speak about it with, with, with um, passion and care is, is very thoughtful. And I think that um, we, uh, Lance Borelowitz, who wrote uh, a book called Vancouver Dream City, has always pointed out that often people who arrive from, let's say, more um, traditional grain city, like in the U.S. Northeast or in, in uh even to some extent like Toronto, certainly Montreal, um, are, are often a little bit critical of Vancouver because of its, its sameness and its lack, for example, of a kind of public urban square. You know, we don't have a Nathan Phillips Square, for example, here. Um, but what, what happens that I think is interesting is that the edge of the city becomes the, the important public space. And I do think that that is, is a dramatic and interesting idea what I'm critical of when I think of the edge of the city, particularly the seawall, is similarly the same challenges, a little bit of a lack of variety. Um, one of the things I always say about Vancouver, if you think of the south shore of the downtown, so really the area of, of False Creek, facing False Creek, I don't know any city in the world that has such an amazingly long stretch of south-facing waterfront without a single true waterfront bar. In fact, there is one. There is one. There is one. Yeah, one. There's, but well, there's kind of two if you count the one. There's a little bar area just underneath the Granville Island or the Burrard Bridge. Um, but it's not on the water. It's on the other side of the path from the water. So you wander yeah. around the little, that little patio there. And this, this is actually exactly. And it's, that's a really interesting point for me because it's um, – it comes down to the one of the core problems in cities is that good ideas or, or really powerful intentions can have somewhat unexpected results. So the, I, I make a I, I often talk about the public engagement process, and we have to have public engagement. Um, but public engagement can sometimes is is good at stopping bad ideas, but it's often good at stopping good ideas as well. Yes, it tends to be most comfortable in things that people have seen before. So I use a couple of examples in this. One is that um, if you if you were to say the entire waterfront of Vancouver should be publicly accessible, you would get rousing cheers in a room of citizens. People would say, of course, that's absolutely correct. Like this is the great, the great idea. And of course they should be, it should be publicly, not just publicly accessible, but publicly owned. And then I say, well, okay, and do you like Granville Island? And I go, oh, yeah, it's great, sitting on the deck at Bridges. You know, you've got the cement batching plant. You've got all of these different things. Now, of course, there are many areas of the water in Granville Island that are very publicly accessible. But it's complex. It's not a simple ribbon of a bike path all the way around the, no. around the island. It's, it's actually a very complex and nuanced waterfront condition that is much harder to describe. Yeah, uh, but it's not as simple as oh, let's just have a walking path that goes along the water all the time. So, 
for example, uh, and so I've had debates with, for example, members of city council. I say there should be a place where we could sit and have a drink immediately next to the water without bikes between us and the water. And I'm not saying that should be 100% of the areas. Um, I'm not even saying it should, but it should. Currently, it's virtually zero. Yeah, and it's, so, on the south side, yeah. yeah, on the north side, you've got, I think it's Lyft over in Coal Harbor. And, you've got uh, a couple, yeah. Yeah. So, but and, these are exceptions. You've traveled, are. you've traveled widely. It's not like, you know, if you imagine some of the canals in Denmark, for example, <laughs> you have Copenhagen, where we thir- spent a week walking around. Yeah, you probably had, you know, a street where you'd have 30 awesome restaurants and bars with a direct access to the water. Yes. And don't get me wrong, I'm a passionate cyclist. I, I love this, but this is where introducing complexity and contradiction in new cities is difficult. Um, I'd, right. like to, I'd like to actually leap to something because you know, your book, Urban Magnets, um, you know, which we discussed a little bit in the preamble saying I'm having had technical difficulties, but thankfully you have a great website, Urban Magnets. Everybody should look that up. And I did read the uh, peer-reviewed paper um, uh, as well to you know, gain a greater sense of what you're asserting. Um, and I was thinking about Granville Island versus the seawall. Granville Island is an urban magnet that you lean into. And I was thinking the seawall isn't. It doesn't meet the assertion. No, it doesn't. So why don't, you, why don't you talk a bit about urban magnets? You know, lean into that, talk about the attributes of urban magnets, what arose from that. And, and Granville Island, because I, I also made a habit of everywhere in the world going to public markets. Hey. Right. And Granville Island <laughs> oh, so uh, let, me, let me ask you a, a reverse question. What's your favorite one in the world? Uh, Granville Island, uh, followed probably by um, the Toronto St. Lawrence Market, followed possibly by the Queen Victoria Market in Melbourne. The Copenhagen Public Market was kind of tried to be more, but it was fairly new when I was there. Uh, the Sao Paulo's public market is really just a huge wet market. It's just unappealing. It's in a horrible part of town. Um, yeah, uh, Calgary's markets are quite limited. They're pleasant is the best I can put uh, say about them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but they, I think the, the only one that I've seen that actually has that urban magnet context in terms of all the attributes, is the St. Lawrence market in Toronto. I'm not sure if mm-hmm. you're involved in any of that or not. I'm um, the programming yeah. there. But, but we've said urban magnets 14 times. So define urban magnets for a couple of years. So what, what, I, I, I like to go back to the, the history of urban magnets is, was that we looked at, and this was really done, a work that was initiated by my friend Mark Holland, who's a planner and passionate about sustainability. And he... Um, was very good at he was very interested in it, it was a period when kind of the tribes idea was starting to come where like people people um who are sharing sharing activities and he got interested in demography he got, you know, he's a very thoughtful thoughtful guy and he, he he asked an interesting question he said okay why was it that granville island um and it certainly had some challenges so i've worked on the, the most recent planning from granville island but overall it's extremely successful and there were a series of markets in the in in this part of the world certainly um, that all were arrived after Granville Island and failed. And the reason that we arrived, they, they basically took a shorthand of Granville Island. The shorthand of Granville Island was uh, a waterfront food market. Yep. 
And I've been to Pike's Market in Seattle. I've been to the San Diego equivalent. Yes. And some of them, the historic ones, you mentioned St. Lawrence Market is, is a great example of Pike's Market. So there's certainly some of the historic ones where there's some grit and grain have, uh, have flourished. So we started digging into this, this idea that fundamentally, um, let, me, let me step back a minute, because this is actually, again, we've got the opportunity not to try and just use a complete elevator speech. <laughs> um, if you think about the places in the world that have a strong sense of identity, um, and historic built identity, but also cultural identity, um, often they have had a strong association with uh, ethnicity and language. So, for example, um, Chinatown in San Francisco or Little Italy in New York. And I'm using these kind of fairly simplistic examples, but, but you can immediately bring them to mind. And so there's a historic grain and, and, and texture and cultural identity associated with those places that gives it a sense of an immediate placeness. Now, what Mark identified, which I think is really interesting, is that, that in a complex multicultural society, and I'm always hesitant about the word multicultural, but let's use it anyway. Let's call it a diverse society like Canada and like the United States. Um, this whole complexity of, of ethnic uh, identity, gender identity, all of those things that traditionally were kind of anchors, even religious identity for people to hang on to, are now uh, much weaker than they used to be. And by the way, I think a lot of that is is a really good thing. I mean, the the, uh, the these are these are really really powerful things. But it's had the the a kind of leakage of a sense of placeness for a lot of things. So so much of what we built in the last fifty years certainly has a generic quality to it. I mean, we were already referencing referencing this. So. If you look at all of the other possibilities, the thing that kind of connects us as people in the way that we're living right now is the things that we choose to do together. So one of the analogies I always use in this context is that, that let's say, and I'm not, but let's say I'm a passionate skateboarder. Um, and uh, I'm much more likely to have a sense of connection with a 30-year-old Vietnamese woman, Vietnamese woman um, who is also a passionate skateboarder than I am um, another 58-year-old white male who doesn't give a two hoots about skateboarding, right? Yep. So, so what the idea of Urban Magnitude said, if we started to think about, and we were also, the other impetus, so that was the kind of curious impetus for Urban Magnets. The um, the I, think kind of a, I, th I think there's an interesting point to insert here um, okay. because many of the places with strong identity were um, ghettoized safe refuges, safe refuges for um, often stigmatized minorities. Um, often true, yes. Uh, so we, true. we think, think about the, the Chinatowns. Um, we think about uh, Little Italy and Little Portugal. There are places where successive waves of immigrants landed and got cheap accommodations downtown and huddled together. We think about um, religious enclaves. We also yes. think about um, Church Street in Toronto, you know, which emerged out of the need for a safe place for the homosexual community to congregate yes. and celebrate together. And, and I have many friends who spent a lot of time there and I've walked up and down there and been in bars and restaurants there myself. And it's diminished now simply because it's so much more available and safe for homosexuals to live anywhere. Um, which is anyway. which is an extraordinary triumph, right? I mean, that yep. to me is something I'm certainly, and I would say that overall the, 
that 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 quality of acceptance of difference that we we shouldn't overestimate if you look at what's going on in the United States and the kind of the terrifying repression of difference and fear of difference. Um, and we have some of that in Canada too, but overall, I would say we've really genuinely created an extraordinarily open culture in terms of acceptance that I don't really care. Like, I mean, it's interesting in this, this conversation, you know, you and I have no idea what each other's gender preference is, for example. Right? <laughs> um, and, and it, and it kind of, it's interesting because it doesn't even occur to me ask them, you know, oh. so, so, which is actually, and we forget how powerful and extraordinary a shift that is, right? Yes. Um, but what it comes at, it comes at the cost of this quality of grit and character at a certain point. Um, yes, and, and that's and, what I was leading into is the transition yeah. from those enclaves of bohemian artists who are struggling to survive those enclaves of ethnicities um, or subcultural groups yeah. That transition that you've made to activity groups is very interesting and conscious and intelligent and diverse as opposed to narrow. So go, lean into that a bit, please. Well, let, so I'll, 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 um, um, I, I, I will lean it right away into that. I'm going to do an intro, a, a secondary intro. So part of the one of the impetus of Urban Magnet was trying to understand why Granville Island continued to have um, many successes associated with it and other places didn't. The other was a certain frustration at our own planning failures. And one of the planning failures that many of us have been involved with, and myself, Mark Holland, and my other co-author, Bruce Irvine, had been involved in places where people, governments had said, let's, let's throw a lot of money at this and make a beautiful place. And we make something beautiful. And at the end of the day, it doesn't have a sense of soul, and it's not actually, um, people don't go there. I mean, and if you look at, at urban planning uses, let's, let's use another street. We talked a little bit about Pacific Boulevard um, in Vancouver. Let's talk about Georgia Street, which has uh, the plaza in front of the Queen Elizabeth Theatre, for example, which is virtually never used except when there's a theatre show on. Yeah, it's, um, it's, so, it's a, and it has a market once a week. Yes, exactly. And that, that's relatively new. So some of these spaces are being used, but, the, but North American cities have also been littered with these kind of public spaces with the assumption that um, uh, if we just create an open space, then people will arrive. Well, so, we, talk, we talked about Alexander too, and you know, uh, he has actually dimensions that he recommends. And Alexander's, a lot of his work was emotive and anecdotal totally based as opposed to empirically based yes. is the way I'd assert it. Um, and so yeah. he had um, also a specific cultural ideal. I think you criticize some of his ideas because uh, the attempts to take an, a European building style and integrate it into a modern lifestyle with very different things just doesn't work very well. But his ideas on public spaces, they're key ideas. He had they are. scale of space. I've been to Brasilia as well, um, just to give you an, another example of a complete failure of urban planning that you're mm -hmm. undoubtedly deeply familiar with. But they failed because the squares just are far too big. And you yes. know, I remember when Dundas Square was going in across from Newton Center and Dundas and Young Street in Toronto and the end result was so wrong in so many ways and mm -hmm. tons of money was spent on it. And they spend a lot of time on programming. I've walked through there probably hundreds of times past different programming, but it's not a place people congregate because it's just a beautiful place to go and sit. 
No, it isn't. And and that's an interesting thing. And it would be hard to, uh, like, what what is the core? Like, I guess one of the questions I would ask would be your Megan says, what's the core activity that's unique and distinctive and passionate that Dundas Square supports? And I don't know what that is. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, and I'm not saying, it's a good question. It's, it's, it's not organic. Certainly it's not organic. And, and not, I do think that sometimes we have to, we have to manufacture things that, that aren't, uh, um, that aren't, uh, necessarily real in our city. Sometimes at one point in urban Magnus, we had a chapter that we deleted called faking authenticity. <laughs> um, but it was an, it was a bit of a cheeky idea, but the, uh, uh, so the, the, if we go into the idea of activity, so let's, I, I always think it's useful to be concrete in, in, in this. Um, so Granville Island, so if we, we define an urban magnet as a area of the city that has a narrower range of uh, catalyzing activities, and those catalyzing activities are expressed or manifested in multiple ways. So one of them is, so let's call it, we have a term we call a complete urban magnet. So a complete urban magnet would have uh, retail, so you can buy stuff. So let's imagine um, a, uh, I'll use my skateboarding example again. Let's say that we have, a, we want to create a skateboarding magnet. We do use a very specific example of what was a nascent skateboarding magnet that was shut down by the authorities because skateboarding is seen as socially backward or deviant. Um, and I was actually and, thinking about skateboarding because I, I have skateboarded. I've skateboarded as a teenager. I got back into it as an adult. I had a longboard and powered around the seawall a bunch of times. And I have an electric skateboard right now. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and I think about the skate parks and I see them as magnets for an activity subculture, but they are not complete because there isn't retailer manufacturing as two of the attributes of a complete urban magnet directly yeah. affiliated with them. There, there is a skate park that I've seen videos from where it's a retail store and an indoor skate park and they do wrenching yeah. of the skateboards and they assemble them. That's much more so. I think that's down in LA somewhere. But yeah, and that, that's a, that's, a, I don't know the particular example you're thinking of, but it's exactly that. It's the, it's the full range. So if you look, if, if and many of us, I know not all your listeners will be familiar with Granville Island, but, but you've got actually overlapping series of magnets at Granville Island. You have, uh, oh, I'm sorry. So let, let's go back briefly to, to our five. So we've got retail. Um, you've got uh, uh, education, which we think is really important for a bunch of reasons. And education doesn't necessarily mean formal education, educational institutions. Um, but uh, for example, Granville Island had Emily Carr, but there were also things like the food school that's just off Granville Island, which is a very important uh, piece. You have um, programming, and this is where the, is something that people often forget. There is a, a, a huge assumption in urban design that if you build a public space, people will just naturally use it. Mostly in our culture, you actually have to program things because some of the ritualistic activities like going to church, going for your, for your evening walk with your family, some of those are much more, um, we've lost many of those. And again, a lot of that is good. We've lost some of the constraints, the cultural constraints that for many people inhibited them from having a full life. But we've also lost that sense of ritual and, and grain that inhabits the city naturally. So sometimes you have to be artificial about it. 
And then manufacturing is extremely important. One of the, the losses in a highest and best use, which is a term that real estate and broker industry uses, is that manufacturing almost never makes sense in wealthy urban cities anymore. And the loss of that is that we lose the sense of people visibly making things. And for us, that's key to the idea of authenticity. Yeah, I, I was and then, thinking about on that note, there's a pier, whatever it is, in downtown Toronto where they actually have um, one of the buildings is a maker building. They have glass makers right. and other types of things. And I often wandered through that building and wandered past that building on my walks around Toronto. And I'm going to return to maker spaces later because I think it feeds that. It was a good, very good question, yeah. But let's finish, let's finish off with the, the discussion of things. The only knit that out for the listeners is specialty retail not just stores. Yes, yes, exactly. Specialty retail. So, so that you can go to a place and immerse yourself in a particular piece of culture, right? And so, so and then the very last component is, is urban design that supports the activity, right? So if you look at, at let's call it a, a half magnet, it's got a few, a few of those things. But Granville Island has at least three different types of magnets. You can even argue there for So certainly it's got an arts magnet. There's arts education on the island. Um, which has taken a blow with the loss of Emily Carr, University of Art so Design. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, you can certainly buy lots of art on the island. Um, there's art fabrication. And again, you could argue that there's two arts. There's a visual arts and a performing arts magnet because all of those are visible. And there's, there's actually the, a maker space down there where they have 3D prototyping and they build architectural models that are... I, I yes. think of those as, you know, different as opposed to representational or aesthetic arts. They're actually creating physical objects. Absolutely. And, and so that gives the place a kind of visceral quality. Uh, and that is a result, in fact, of an economic model where the market makes the money and subsidizes lower rents for people that normally couldn't afford it, which is a very important consideration. Um, can I ask you this one question? It's really interesting to me. So for people who don't know Granville Island, it has a working cement manufacturing plant. Yes. On the island as well. Incredibly gritty. Um, mm -hmm. If that went away, would that be good or bad? That would be terrible. And it's a very interesting because it's one of the things where um, I, I think if, if, you, if you imagine Falls Creek, Falls Creek used to be an industrial area. Like it was surrounded even as late as the 70s. There were log booms in Falls Creek. Um, and it's hard to imagine now that the entire city has kind of been, been sanitized. When we were working on the Grand Island 2040 plan with um, uh, my collaborators at HCMA many years ago, a few years ago, not that many years ago, um, the, um, uh, one of the favorite lines of our advisory board said to us that Grand Island is like a, uh, uh, a island of publicness in a sea of real estate speculation, <laughs> which, yes. which I thought was a favorite line. I, can't rem I should remember who said it because it was such a great line. But um, so it, there's the arts magnet of Granville Island, but there's also a food magnet. So all of the components, you can buy food, you can learn about cooking, um, you can, the public space supports, like in some extent, the, the manufacturing, like there are windows onto the people making the donuts. Right. And if you think you contrast that to Safeway, where, yes, they've kind of sometimes they've got the deli guy that cuts the cheese, but the, the really gritty stuff all happens in the back. Right. Yeah. Um, and that front and back was key to the urban magnet thinking. Make that make things that occur naturally visible. Like we've had this this idea of cities that clean is good. Um, hey, here's an idea. This just occurred to me. Modernism. Okay 
the architectural aspects of modernism that I truly love are getting rid of ornamentation, exposing the physical connectors um, yeah. unadorned, and yet modernism also created a strong hide the back stuff away Absolutely. as well. It's kind of inverse yeah. in terms of those those um, dimensions of modernism. And so you're trying to draw those back alley activities and those things that were hidden behind a facade of glass back to the foreground. Absolutely. And it's expensive. It's, it's challenging to do that from an economic perspective because what we want to do is we want to have the storage rooms in the back and the, the fancy retail store shop in the front, right? Yep. And because that's what makes economic sense. So urban magnets is a challenge to economic orthodoxy, but it's also about activation. If you look at the failure of the malls in the United States, for example, that is very widespread, so many of it is because they're just focused on that single aspect, which is retail. You can go there to buy stuff. So it's not actually a complete human experience. So part of the idea of urban magnets is that it becomes a complete human experience. And there's also a really important um, aspect of urban magnets that I think is very important is that one of the things that's influenced city making for many years is snobbery. <laughs> and oh, gee, I, I get, <laughs> yeah, and I, I get a, and I, what I like, I, I like to tell a story. So my, um, my co-author Bruce Urban and I went to do a presentation in Prince George. Now Prince George is, is a, um, a rough mill town. And, and there's people that are hugely passionate about it. It's, you know, it's, it's one of the boom bust um, um, extractive industry cities that, that populate BC. And we got hired, me and my former role as a partner at, uh, at that time, Hotzenbacher, Boniface Hayden, which became Dialogue, um, to do a feasibility study to um, build a theater. And the theater was going to probably cost between 50 and $100 million to do. And Prince George didn't have a theater and they wanted a theater. Now, I love live theater. I mean, live theater is awesome. It's one of the great passions of my life. But these are expensive buildings. They cost a lot to run. They, they, they have a lot of blank walls. Um, they, they typically activate the streetscape for very narrow periods of time. And some of this was this idea that, of, you know, people looking around and going, well, you know, Vancouver's got a theater. Um, uh, you know, Hamilton has a theater. We should have a theater, right? And they did have, by the way, they did have small theaters and, and, and sort of theater-like spaces. It wasn't the theater was completely absent. But you know, these are these huge investments in small towns. So, so let's. So, if instead of saying we need a theater because other people need, everybody else has a theater, so we should get one because that's what good urbanism looks like. The urban magazine says. Let's think about it from what's special about Prince George. Now, one of the reasons, other than they got a job, that people go to Prince George is there's amazing hunting and fishing around Prince George. You drive up to the town for half an hour, you can be at Christine Lake with amazing. So, and there, there is, for example, I, I should know, I don't know the answer is whether they're still there, but there used to be an amazing kind of um, um, fly fishing store in downtown mm -hmm. Prince George. And so, Instead of spending $100 million on a, on a, on a theater that's going to cost you a lot to run, what if you gave half a million dollars and you turn the street in front of this fly fishing store into a fly fishing practice park? And you go down, you go down into, into Prince George and you're wandering around Prince George and instead of seeing Blackwell Street, you see a bunch of people doing fly fishing lessons on a Saturday morning in the middle of the downtown street. That would be fascinating. And uh, by the way, my dad was a huge 
Fisher. He ran rods and reels um, organizations yeah. across northern Canada because he was with the Canadian military as a radar tech. So I grew up in mosquito country, and I learned how to fly fish. And it's an it's a beautiful thing, and part of the part of the core idea of urban magnets. I probably should have right at the beginning, and I didn't. Apologies, um, bad bad podcast etiquette. Um, is that people love to see other people doing things that they're passionate about? Yes. Like but, I don't know anything about fly fishing, but, but it's sure it's interesting. It's so from interesting. A, but it's interesting the way you express it because you say it's performative and pleasurable to watch, but it's unself-conscious. It exactly. Isn't, it isn't yes. theater. It is people doing yeah. stuff because they love doing it, and other people happen to enjoy watching it. Exactly. And, and you know, you just described, like, um, fly fishing for many Canadians. So, you know, we are a country where there are many people that are deeply passionate about it, and yet you can't name a single urban place which which would celebrate or or understand that even a piece of art I can't think of. Um, uh, so I can think of so um, Copeland's Park near um, in the Spadina and King area. <clears throat> oh yes, that's a good example. Thank you yeah, for that one. Of, so for people who don't know, because I, I happen to know because um, I've actually written about they should just link those parks because they've got beautiful little pocket parks that are very interesting like that, but they're yeah. all highly disconnected. That one, yes. my wife and I had a that decade of travel included a lot of periods of very temporary accommodations. And we lived in a condo um, that we rented for I think a month or three in that complex. And so oh, we were nice. right above the park. I had to sneak through the construction to get to it because the park was finished, but the construction around it wasn't. But yeah, it has fishing. It has a, a fake beaver dam. It has a plaza with fishing bobbers that are 20 feet tall. Right, right. Yes, it, that it is has, a great example. Yeah. It has a huge 25 or 30 foot red canoe. It's bigger than the freighter canoe my dad had in Moosonee. And you can walk out and you can stand cantilevered out over a big open space looking at the Gardner Expressway and waving at cars. Right. And it, yeah, it's a, it's a great space. And I thank you for that. That's a wonderful example, but it still is an interesting one that it's a sort of, um, it's a sculptural celebration, not a, not a, um, there's it's nothing a, active about it's it. It's not an urban magnet. It's just yeah. there. It, I love it, but it's just there. Yeah. And, and by the way, I'm not saying that I go for spectrum. I think Doug Copeland is a, is a remarkable character. I think one of the great things about Doug is that he's fundamentally not snobby, no. right? Which is really interesting. I mean, uh, he did this wonderful show in, in Richmond where he populated this, this um, rancher that was about to be demolished um, from the 60s, kind of a completely ordinary Canadian house. He populated it with kind of Canadian... Canadian. Um, Canadian. Did, did, did you see that? Yeah, craft dinner and, uh, and fishing floats and I think old... Um, uh, he he populated it my childhood. Yeah, exactly. And, and we all, most of us, we walked, in, walked into that, we walked into that, that exactly right. And Gumhead. But I, but I think Gumhead is also, was a hor horrible, disgusting thing, but it was also a Copeland. You know, do you remember Gumhead? I do remember it. It was oh. great. It was, oh. Yeah. Put, put your used gum on this face. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's the etiquette, the, the, you know, the, high, the person who actually helped build a, um, the pandemic response solution a decade ago, um, one, of yes. the things, one of my backgrounds is um, that I helped build the most sophisticated public health communicable disease and outbreak management solution in the world. Um, 
and it, we did it here actually, and it's used here. That's an amazing, <laughs> which is something you should be very proud of, by the way. I, I am very proud of that. But anyway, the, the public health part of me went, ooh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, that's so true. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund Clean Tech Talk.